This is a Momentum Media production. Welcome to the Pure Property Podcast. Whether you are considering buying your first investment property or reaching property mogul status, we dissect the fundamentals through to large-scale property development and everything in between. It's like a Seinfeld rift, isn't it? I actually gave that feedback. <laughs> the Pure Property Podcast, we made it past the pilot episode. Surprise, surprise. Uh, obviously, something's going right. Uh, we only launched this last month. Uh, new instalment coming to you live on the Property Investment Podcast Network. I'm Phil Tarrant, co-host of the Pure Property Podcast with Paul Glossop. I'm not Paul Glossop. It's not my mug on the branding there either. The caricature, which has been getting rave reviews from across Australia. The punters love it. I think I like it more than you, Paul. But yeah, you're back. <laughs> I am back. But you're back. By, by unpopular demand. I've been, I've been looking at the reviews coming through. Uh, on. Um, Thank you for everyone. Yeah, I've seen the reviews coming review. through. And I, but I do note there is one one, one star. One one star. Is that your mum? Yeah, I know. Probably. We talked about this. I know she, she likes to she take didn't give me feedback. It was just a, it was just a quick punch of the, uh, the the quick one star review. I wasn't too happy with it. I did well, give, give mum a bit of grief about that one. You should do. No, no. It's, it's got to be, or, or, or at least someone we know. <laughs> but uh, if you're other one star reviewer, um, yeah. Bit of feedback, though. Bit of feedback. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. We're, let's, we're let's trying to fix this thing. We're trying to make it good. <laughs> Everyone else says it's all right. You get any yeah. feedback? First first episode? Uh, like heaps people, of it. We spoke yeah. about this just a second ago, mate. We're getting heaps of feedback. Five-star reviews and um, people saying, look, it's nice to hear some specific information about property as opposed to general. And, you know, to be fair, the uh, the first episode was probably a lot more general than what these next few will be, which is um, it's going to be exciting because I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode and hopefully a few more that are going to be very similar to this one over the next few months. Yeah, and the first one was really just a way for us to set up this series, this new podcast, The Pure Property Podcast with Paul Glossop. And you can actually get it on all good podcast channels. It has its own channel that's syndicated, obviously, across the Property Investment Podcast Network as well, so we can make sure you can find it how or wherever you like to tune into it. We're also right across the social media, so welcome for those people tuning in via video. We're back and we're wearing exactly the same clothes. Uh, I just I wear it better, but... Um, um, it's very much a property uniform, though. Isn't it? I'm happy to see some comments below. In uh, if anyone's going to watch this via the the YouTube videos yes. as well, um, I'm happy to people to judge who wore it better. Okay, yeah. Well, you you look like you're down to business. You got your sleeves rolled up. Sleeves rolled up. Whereas um, I'm a bit more pedestrian in my look, and that's the way I like it to be. My job is just to steer this uh, conversation. And when we set this podcast up in our inaugural episode, it was very much around. What are we going to do to do this differently? And that was my agreement to do this podcast with Paul. Is that okay? Good. I get it. Let's do things differently. And where we got to, where we come to was let's pull portfolios apart. Let's get people in who are clients of people property investment and have a chat with them and see how they're going about leveraging and executing the strategies put together by the team at at Pure Property, and we have that uh, today. What And it's probably how we'll structure most podcasts moving forward. Yeah, I think so. Uh, discussions uh, between yourself, Paul, and, and clients, whether it's over the Zoom or if they come and have a yarn with us, I'm, I'm happy to do either or. Very different products in that case. But um, I've tuned into a conversation that you've had with William, and you'll, you'll see it or hear it soon as part of this discussion. And the idea is that much like sports analogies, and we spoke about this in the first podcast, you know, we're going to do the wash-up, the wash-up of 
what's just happened uh, so we can have a discussion around where people are on their property investment journey. Some of them are at the start of it, some are in the middle of it, some are at the back end of it. And I think William's sort of towards the back end of his uh, property journey, but pulling apart how they did it, what worked, what didn't work, what could be done differently, what could be done better, what was good, what was indifferent, and give some sense narrative to the science of property investment, but also the actual realities of doing it. And the realities of property investment are very different to what you might read in books or listen on podcasts. When you're on the chance of doing it, it can be a mess. And this is the way it works. Uh, but the better off you can do, and we spoke about this in the first episode, the ability to debrief after every thing that happens, right? You know, it doesn't need to be too formal, but working out, hey, how could we have done that better? And what are we going to do next time? And that's very much what we're going to be doing on this podcast, this podcast series. And I do look forward to it. You've known William for a while. Paul, he's been a client for a while. Yeah, quite some time. I mean, this is a benefit of, of being an investment property buyer's agent for coming close to a decade now is that- um, It's a decade, isn't Close it? to, very close to, over eight years. Um, and you know, with that, we've got clients who have been with us for a very long time and, and not only buying one property and seeing what the outcome was from one asset, but in William's case, buying- many properties to execute on a, a much more of an aggressive strategy. And if you ask him, he probably would have been more aggressive if, if he had his time again. But yeah, have known William for close to eight years or seven years now, and um, we still touch base very regularly, even though his, his buying or his acquisition phase is, is probably about two or three years past where it's finished. Our job is to catch up regularly to maximize. So I don't want to give too much away because we're going to go to the um, go to the audio, go in the footage shortly with your your conversation uh, with William. When did you speak to William? Give some, uh, last week. Some time. Okay, it was a yep. last week thing. Yep. And you, you had a discussion over the Zoom? Correct. For the purpose of this or was it a bit of a catch-up? Uh, we, we catch up typically every six months. And, and to yep. be honest with you, I catch up with most of my existing clients. Typically, we'll reach out every six months to have a catch-up. Sometimes it's a very quick debrief. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes it's a Zoom session to go through numbers and graphs and, and data. But um, yeah, every six months with William, I've probably been catching up with him every six months since we started this journey. Mm. And and how did it start with William? How did he find you? Do you remember? Or what was I do, the, what's I the do, origin we, of the relationship? Um, he, he essentially interviewed me as a potential buyer's agent way back then, back in 2017. I think he interviewed me along with a handful of other buyer's agents at the time. We went through and he came in with a pretty clear understanding of where his position was and where he wanted to get to. And um, out of that conversation, I detailed a very clear plan, which in our catch up, when we cut to it, I go through what that plan was. We go through warts and all where he was, where he wanted to get to. I work, work through in that conversation, essentially what I'd suggest we should be doing, where we should be going. And from that, you know, he took that information, went away and made a decision and engaged us a few weeks later. And Went off to the races from there. Yes, yeah, so how does it work? And it's a lot of people sort of are, always ask me, there's a bit of mystery around it. So do people, it's probably the right and wrong language, but do they shop around for a buyer's agent? Like do they go and interview a whole bunch of them and work out who they want to work with? Is that typical? I think some do. I think probably back then it was probably more typical because these types of platforms were probably a fair bit more rare and the information mm. that people could really glean from in the outside media was probably a little bit more difficult to get the handle on. I think this day and age, most people, if they're you know, tuning into the Pure Property Podcast or the SPI show or anything of that nature, they're probably hearing different things. Sometimes the messages are, a lot of the time, the messages are quite consistent. But I think what people are able to do now without having to go and interview buyers, agents, or property strategists, or a combination of the two similar to mortgage brokers is they probably get a bit more of a clearer handle as to who they like, what they hear, how that fits within their personal persona, who they think they can get along with. Because we've talked about this for years, Phil, mm -hmm. is that you're not just engaging someone to get an outcome. You, you really should be engaging someone who you can pick up the phone, have a chat with, whether it's a brief chat or get some really clear information on, and someone who you get and gets you. 
And yeah, to be honest with you, we're not all the same. And you know, I've had people who have who've interviewed me, and we just they didn't engage us, um, and for their own reasons, and vice versa. You know, we've worked with people, or or people have engaged us, and we've had to part ways very early in the piece because we realise that, you know, what if you're not the right people, or you don't get on early in the piece, then you probably know that the long term outcome is not going to be achieved one way or the other, and people aren't going to be super happy. But yeah, he, he interviewed us, and I think that's it's still a relatively common way, but most of the time now when people reach out to us at Pure Property Investment or if I have that initial conversation, people will know a lot more about our business now before they've even chatted to me. So, so they, they feel as though they know you yeah, because yeah. of doing stuff like this? Completely, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. They'll, they'll know what they're kind of getting in for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of feedback, a lot of reviews, a lot of testimonials, a lot of results, all those things that kind of people make their mind up before they've come to us. I'd say 90% of the time I speak with a client, they've probably already made up their mind. It's more just a, a validation conversation. And then we get to the point of here's the criteria, here's the strategy, let's get started. So do you give people a strategy before you get engaged? And I say because a lot of people are going, ha-ha, I was just going to speak to buyer's agent and yeah. they'll tell me what to do and I won't use them. Yeah. It's so, a, so like, is that the process? You say, here's the strategy, now let's hmm. start. And yeah. that's when, I guess, the clock starts, right? Because you get paid for the service that you do. It's probably one of the most debated parts of the buyer's agency industry, I think, personally. And it's been something we've been consistent with since day dot. Some people are very, very closed in on their, you know, trade secrets in air quotes as far as locations or property types that they think are going to be booming and that's their intellectual property. Some people, they ring fence it for their own reasons and others, i.e. pure property investment, we look at it as, hey, look, you know, we're not exposing suburbs which don't exist. We're exposing suburbs which we see for our own reason, validation that we think are going to outperform the market and are going to fit your budget, going to fit your cash flow. So to you answer your question, we typically, in that first catch-up, we're going to be spending a good half an hour, more often than not, sometimes a bit more, to A, get the information on what we need as far as your current position. And we don't want to hear necessarily all the information, but more so the pertinent financial information, time-sensitive information, what your objectives are. We then take that information to then put it into, here's what we think is going to be realistic, because not every client's going to buy the same property in the same location for the same price and the same cash flow. And they might already have certain assets, so they might have land tax thresholds or exposure, diversification, et cetera. Out of that conversation, every single time, when I catch up with clients for that first time, I will then send back through a much clearer draft, which will likely be a blueprint as to here's where we are, here's what we think we can do immediately, here's what we would recommend we should be executing on, and that will talk about the locations, the property types, and a lot more of the macro data as far as why we'd suggest that. And then that will probably also fold into a medium-term plan and a long-term plan, which that's the part which we typically would review a bit more, I guess, in-depth, ongoing after we've executed on that next investment or that first investment upfront. So your value proposition then is largely the executing because, yeah. you know, you can give a plan to someone, but they're still going to execute it. And you can say, yeah, sure. Well, I just spent 45 minutes with you and you think you're clever because I've given you a strategy and go and do it yourself. I'll, I'll, I'll see you on the beach, right? You know, we're going to be bidding for the same properties. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think that therein lies sort of the rub, which because of our side of things, you buy thousands of properties, you learn things. And it's mm. it's like any industry, it's like any vocation. And, and the one thing that we've learned very, very much intently is that we know, especially in the markets that we're buying in or markets that we have bought in or markets we're about to buy in, we do so much in-depth detail analysis on not not just the property, but the streets, the zoning, comparables, knowing which agents to buy through, knowing which agents to sell through, essentially knowing how to get property off market is a very, very key part of that. 
we still, I mean, we buy hundreds of properties a year and I would say that out of those hundreds, which has been the same since day one, 95% plus of those are always going to be off-market, unadvertised assets. So when it comes down to it, to answer your point, Phil, look, we could say, look, we're not going to send you any information until you pay us a retainer or some form of money to really release that info. I've found that you know, anyone who's genuine and wants to engage us, they want to do it because A, they know they want to advance themselves or their family financially, but B, they know that A, they don't, A, B, but they most importantly don't know that, or they know that they don't have the time or the propensity or the ability to actually do what someone does for a living and get as good an outcome. Mm. Yeah, Our fee typically is always going to be made back on the outset from the acquisition price, but as important, you know, people aren't going to be spending their weekends going through open homes. They're not going to be scratching their heads wondering what they're offering. Is that actually price? Is that market? Is that over? Have I done all the research? Do I know the flood overlays, the bushfire overlays, the cash flow breakdowns? Do I know the zoning? Is this orientation correct? Is those school catchments going to benefit me more than that street over, which is a different school catchment? Which one's more beneficial? There's so many other things that go into that. Our job is to say, look, you don't worry about that. That's our job. We'll present the property. You make the decision. And ideally, that's where the value is in our proposition. It's not necessarily saying, aha, here's the suburb that no one else is thinking of that's going to double your money mm. in the next 10 years. That's never that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's how well you play the game is how effective you are when it comes to buying property. There's not that many secrets in property, no. to be honest with you. You know, we did the big fast history report earlier this year and and we'll catch up on that because I know a lot of the suburbs that we we identified are performing pretty well, right? Yeah, but absolutely. all the inf- all the information is out there. It's free. It's, it's, it's how they you can execute. download it right now if anyone it's wants how, to. It's, how yeah. you, it's, it's really how you execute. So I find it funny, you know, the old uh, was it tie kickers? People going around kicking a car like ah, oh, buy that, but no, no, thinking yeah. that, thinking they're being clever. But would you say ninety plus percent of all your properties? Ninety five percent off market. So so let's just clarify what that is. is uh, unadvertised is different to off market. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Tell me how you... Um, well, well, I guess my definition would be that if we were presenting property to you as a client of ours, Phil, and I said, hey, look, we've got this property secured, it's, it's within the location that we want the price and it ticks all the boxes and we see based on comparables, we think it's good buying. I guess the biggest benefit beyond that is the next part is that saying, hey, in addition to that, it's not going to auction. And secondly, it doesn't have an open home campaign for this Saturday or the following Saturdays or the next eight weeks until they get the best price. And there's not Mm -hmm. going to be 10 people going through every single weekend with multiple offers pushing up the price. If you go and look at it on realestate.com, it shouldn't exist on the portals. It should say off market. For us, regardless of whether the property is off market, on market, and the labeling's usually got a whole bunch of different universal terms, what we're trying to do is minimize other people who are so reducing competition? Buyers, reducing competition. I mean, if I'm selling a property, I'll probably preface this by saying I have actually personally sold property personally, my own portfolio off market, but I've certainly sold property via auction. You essentially want to get the best price. Typically, the best price is, is going to be established by getting the most amount of people looking at it and outbidding each other to get the market price set. Our job's to do the opposite of that is that we want to minimize anyone else looking at it. We try to set the price. If the vendor is happy with that price, we minimise any other needs for open homes, holding costs, you know, all those other things. And that's that's mm. a big part of our value-add proposition. There you go. But this is not a podcast around why you use a buyer's agent, but it's good to get a bit of insight into how it all works. So so William was obviously happy when he caught up with you guys because he went, yeah, let's do something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, he, he's a pretty happy guy in general, to be completely honest with you. But um, he was generous enough to say, yeah, look, I'm, I'm absolutely happy. Because I think one thing that William's – learnt and probably has become a big advocate on over the years is that, you know, the, again, going back to your point, Phil, is that there's not that many secrets out there and that the biggest mm-hmm. thing he wants to impart is that, hey, you know, 
most people can do this. Don't feel like just because you doubt yourself or you think that what you want to achieve is kind of that unattainable position. He's testament to the fact that he had a plan. He had a starting position and he went executed on it. And he's like, I just want to share the goodwill because that's what allows more people to get to better positions long-term. And this is why he's happy to come and have a chat with you and let us pull his portfolio apart, right? 100%. He's, he's fine. Yeah. No worries. Completely. That's very, it's good uh, paying forward the karma. Absolutely. And, and he's very much a, a pay, paying it forward type of guy. And I think we've probably worked with, you know, a good dozen or so of his friends and family who they've mm. had conversations with over the years as well. And it's essentially just paying forward the fact that saying, hey, you know, give this guy a call. I reckon there's probably something that can be done that's going to put you in a better position than what you're otherwise going to achieve over the next 20 years. I guess that's the sort of business you like to generate, right? Completely. It's, mm. it's the number one type of business because it's goodwill business. It's people who have the right mindset aren't looking to make money tomorrow and you know, essentially just trying to incrementally better their retirement or mm. their kid's position or a combination of those things. Well, you, you, do, you do talk about that with William in this conversation. We'll, we'll, throw to the, um, we'll throw over to the audio or the video, depending how you, you're engaging with us right now, before we give too much away. It's probably best if we hear what William's got to say and then we can come back and we can sort of pull it all apart and see what it's doing. Uh, over to the video and the audio, we'll... Be back uh, as soon as uh, Paul's chat with William is over. Back in a moment. Thank you, firstly, for joining me, William. And, and I know, but we've known each other for, for quite some time now. As, you know, professionally, we, we obviously started working together best part of seven years ago. Um, as you know, this is a segment that we've got within the Pure Property podcast that we want to really explore a bit more of the real life stories of how investors got to where they got to, what their goals were, how close to those goals did they actually get, what did they do wrong, what did they do right, what's their portfolio made up of, and learning some really hopefully valuable lessons along the way that others can take some of the information and hopefully can use the good bits and also understand what the bad bits are to avoid those mistakes. So for you and I today, William, um, mate, hopefully what I want to let the audience uh, probably understand a little bit more first and foremost is probably just a bit of your backstory. Um, you know, why did you choose property first and foremost as your wealth creation vehicle? Because you know full well that there's, there's certainly different ways that everyone can make money in the world, but why did property become the, the main vehicle for you to use, you and your family to use to make wealth over the long term? Absolutely. Thanks, um, Paul. Um, when I was um, a bit younger, I tried to have the breakthrough of my my career, which wasn't too successful. So that's the first start. And then second, <laughs> then I, then, um, then I uh, had a look at um, share trading. I study a fair bit of it. Um, yep. Stocks trading, options, short calling and all that. But that involved a lot of time. So much time that it's, and, I, and at the same time, I don't have the capital to do it. The leverage itself isn't as, uh, as good. Um, so I was looking for something that I can do it part-time. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, doing my uh, full-time job during the day so that I can increase my wealth day by day, night by night, that I can go to sleep. If I, if I do stockbroking or, or share trading, I will probably have to spend a good three to four hours every day by being involved into the stock market, which then that means it's more or less like an extra part-time job. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also the leverage is, is not as good because property you can borrow 
you can put 10% deposit or, or 20% deposit, then you can you can borrow 80 to 90%. Sometimes you, with um, with RMR, you can borrow up to 100%. So mm. the leverage is uh, far substantially more. And yep. I, when I study property uh, through books, um, they, there are not that many podcasts at the time. So it's mainly through books and seminar. I find that, that for the last 50 years, the property market of Australia has been going up consistently, not a one shot going up, but consistently. And also the interest rate uh, comes in through the cycle. Um, so if I can act on the time when the interest rate cycle was low, then I can maximize my opportunity. Mm. That's how and I started. Thank you, buddy. And, and I think if I'm sort of crystallizing that down to, to two main things that I heard there is property for you, after exploring a, a range of other options, the power of leverage Leverage is probably one of the things which is very quite unique to, to property itself. And then the second part is is time and that it's it's as much as I don't and, and we both know for well that property is not a, a truly a passive investment and no investing is truly no, I passive. Don't, I don't mean by it's a passive um, that I don't need to do anything. I still have to act on it. I still have to talk to you. I still have to <laughs> talk property manager. I still have to talk. I still have to deal with a lot of things. But yeah. At the time that I can control, but if I yep. look at the stock market, if I look at a, a a United States stock market, I have to wake up in the middle of the night to go through all. Correct. This. If I if yep. I look, yeah, there are time constraints. Yeah, and it's it's the hours that are invested. So time and leverage. It sounds like they're the two main things. So I guess if we cast out our of time and 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 also our, our minds back to when we first caught up and and when you first set up a meeting to to chat with myself and I think it was it was relatively early in 2017 from memory yeah, so that's right know, 2017 we were, yeah so we were both both much uh, much younger and probably no doubt less like, gray like, hair <laughs> less gray hair far less gray hair but um Let's uh, let's let's try to pump our tires up a little bit and talk about the happy things. But, but um, <laughs> you know, 2017, we first caught up. So probably the question I wanted to ask you is, and I know at the time you had spoken to quite a number of other buyers agents before. Yes. Well, not a number, but but a, num- a number of other buyers agents before you you ended up engaging our services. Would you mind sharing with the listeners, I guess, what were the, some of the key things that you were looking for within a buyers agent? Because you obviously had a career, you were busy at the time. You knew you had a goal and you had a target that you wanted to get to, but you also realized that you needed help. So you wanted to engage professionals to get that help. Um, what were some of the things that, that I guess led you to, or what were some of the key considerations and what led you to choosing pure property investment at the time? Well, I've invest, um, I study and invest in uh, property um, before I met you in uh, yep. 2019. Um, 2017. Oh, sorry, 2007. <laughs> <laughs> that time flies. <laughs> so um, I understand that after I study and after I invest in properties for a while, I understand that for me, the max I can buy property maybe once or twice in a couple of years. So I don't mm. have that expertise. And when I study the reports, by the time when I'm reading the report, am I really in touch with the market polls? Mm. I really know what's going on day by day, week by week, how the cycle runs. I purchased some purely by myself and the result are okay because time can make heal a lot of mistakes. But I couldn't maximize my opportunity at the time if I knew mm. what I was doing or if I can get the expertise. So that's why I start to, after a few properties, 
mm. start to reach out to a few buyers agents and I interview every one of them. My aim was looking for their expertise and how they will, what's their theme, what's their idea. Mm. Some may be doing, you know, uh, jewel, some may be doing development, some may be doing, I, I look for what, how, what are their themes and how it will tie into my ideas. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah, That's, fair enough. These mate. are the things that, that I was looking for. And also at the same time, I look for their interaction skills. Do they just want to sell me something? Do they just mm. sell me a, a land and then I build a new new place on it? Or do they actually want to create the whole portfolio with me consistently uh, through the years? Because I have that plan. I have that plan of 10 years. I have that goals, which you probably yeah. will bring in that big spreadsheet of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> of, of and we've had and multiple iterations. Where I wanted to be, you know, by the time I'm 50 years old and, and yeah. how I want to do it. And um, yeah, I, I had the idea. Yeah. And that's a great segue. To help me out. Completely. And, and I think that's the perfect segue, mate, because I think as, as we had that first meeting, which was quite an involved meeting, because at that time we unpacked where you were. We also unpacked that that not, not just the short term goals, but also where we wanted to get to in that six years to ten year time frame. And you know, we're not too far off that right now. And I think it's probably one thing I've just done as part of this podcast is I've brought up what our our top line objectives were from a short short term, medium term, and we deemed them to be long term objectives back then. Um, and I'm gonna, if it's okay with yourself, I just want to share with the the listeners, I guess, a little bit about. What we where we started, um, and I guess what we were trying to execute on, and you can maybe flesh out a little bit more about what we actually did, what properties we bought, where we bought, why we bought them, what the outcomes been since then. So, if I look at the, the position in 2017, you had your principal place of residence. You also had an investment at that time, um, and we had a, a pretty strong position. You'd done an equity cash out with your. Bring that that was actually whilst we were going through the royal commission into the banking sector, so finance actually wasn't really that straightforward then either. Um, so, so I guess for any of the listeners who are only just starting to think about it now, finance hasn't been easy for a long time. Um, 2017 certainly was no, was no exception. It was a difficult time to attain finance. So we, we set some lofty goals and we we're going through a challenging period to access money. But at that time, we had an eight-year goal to within your property portfolio of circa 2.7, 2.8 is where we wanted to get to. And we wanted to get to a weekly income goal of around about $1,500 to $1,600 a week net. That's what we wanted to achieve because ultimately what that was going to allow you to do was then make choices on what you do with your time because we knew if we could replace X amount of income and you realize from your spendings that if you could get to this position, then that would allow you to have freedom of choice, which yeah, we can talk about a little bit later in the podcast as to what you choose to do with your time now because yeah, we talk, talked off air a little bit and we talk regularly about what you choose to do off air and we share a few more stories, but we'll get to that. So, so that was sort of the top line position. Now, I guess to get there, we had to, we had to make some pretty, some, some pretty aggressive steps. Now, we had a good amount of equity um, available. At that time, we harvested equity out of your principal place of residence and your investment. And I think at the time, we had somewhere around about seven or $800,000 available yep. that we wanted to actually utilize. Now, um, we, we, we wanted to get aggressive, so we had to utilize that at the maximum possible. And remembering, too, that not, we weren't necessarily, uh, going back to that theme of, of, of actually borrowing, 
you weren't that attractive to the big four. So we had to go down the pathway of non-bank lenders, et cetera. So it wasn't just say, hey, we went knocked on the door of CBA and said, can I please have a, a 20% LVR loan and let's go down that pathway 10 times over. You know, we were talking about Pepper. We were talking about Liberty. We were talking about the non-banks, the non-conformings back then as well. Yeah. Um, so, so the intention in the very short term, so we had a, about a two-year two year goal at that time to gain exposure to ideally five or six investments to get a total exposure of somewhere between two to two and a half million dollars in total assets in addition to where we were. And we wanted those properties to essentially have a, a bit of a blend of abil- ability to develop renovation, add value to, but also they needed to see some really decent cash flow positions immediately because we had to keep this portfolio afloat. You didn't have the surplus cash flow to say, hey, look, I can I can withstand a 50 or 100 grand a year negative straight away. That just right. simply wasn't the case. And nor is it the case for most people, let's be honest. Um, so that was, the, that was that sort of short-term goal. Then we had a medium-term goal. And again, these short-term, medium-term, long-term timeframes aren't necessarily what I set for everyone. I think they're, they're depending on your requirements. We had about a, a three to four-year target, and that was still our acquisition phase to look at three additional assets to build into the portfolio in 2019 and 2020. Um, and that was sort of focusing on that 350 to 400K price point at that time again. Cash flow neutral was was still quite important, um, and, and we wanted to make sure that the entire portfolio could, in some way, shape, or form, be pretty much neutralized across all the assets. Now, some were more growth, some were more cash flow, some were more future development, um, but we wanted to get the total portfolio value to circa six point five million dollars by the end of twenty twenty, um, and then we also wanted to make sure we kept cash flow somewhere around about neutral pre tax where possible, um, and then. That fed into our long-term targets, which were sort of we blended that to about six to 10 years was our long-term goal. And we're kind of smack bang in that long-term position right now. We wanted to then look at that was the consolidation slash development or renovation phase and potentially partly sell down assets to then create that cash flow position. So we, I think after we did execute on that short and medium term, what we did then is that we didn't buy any more property necessarily after that, but we certainly caught up regularly and we still do catch up regularly to assess all these goals, to tinker around the edges, look at selling, look at uh, do we rise rents, do we look at renovating, is it granny flat time, is it subdivision time? And we go through that conversation quite regularly. But I guess the six to 10-year target was we wanted a total mortgage position of around about uh, around about five point, sorry, t- total equity position or, or sorry, total asset base um, factoring in a 6% average annual growth by year eight or 2024 we wanted to have a total value of around about eight to eight and a half million. We probably assumed that our mortgages would be somewhere between 5.2 to 5.7 million at that time if we executed on that strategy. And we wanted to then say that that would have us a gross equity position of somewhere around about two and a half to $2.8 million. That was the plan. So if anyone wants to listen to that, it was a very aggressive plan. Ambitious plan. Very much so. So, yeah, obviously what the listeners are going to want to know is that, okay, well, look, it's great to set these really lofty goals and go on and often try to buy a whole bunch of assets and have them grow in value, balance your cash flow, and then ideally have a, a big net income over time. But it's, it's 2023, you know, we're only one year off the end of that plan coming to fruition. Um, now it's 2023 and, and the, the back end of 2023. What everyone wants to know is, I guess, where did we end up? So if you don't mind, mate, what it might be really valuable, and I don't think we need to go into the nitty-gritties of every property, but maybe take the listeners through what we started with, 
how we built the portfolio and what did we do at the end of it all? You know, essentially, where are we now? So, um, so we start off with a really ambitious plan mm-hmm. that we nutted out gradually, one by one. Every couple of months, we buy one property. I see my um, broker, you know. <laughs> he stresses a little bit more. Every time stresses a little bit more every time when I ask for a new loan. <laughs> but because uh, with the good selections of the um, properties, we managed to uh, control the cash flow. We managed to uh, um, uh, do some short-term growth, um, some from Tasmania, uh, which uh, by now have exit over 100%. Um, I look at it, the six or seven properties that we've all got, the average is about over 60% growth, which yep. is um, you know, what, we, what we really target for. And um, so it was good. It was um, uh, very, very good that, um, that we could achieve those results. And, and where, where did the assets end up getting selected? Just, just for the listeners' sake. So we started, I know you mentioned we've got a couple of properties in the Tasmanian market. Yeah, and Queensland, Brisbane. Yep, yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, these are the um, two main areas we focus at a time because at yep. that time the cycles was dead for the properties to grow. Um, yeah, one thing that I regret, I didn't get anything in Perth. Yep, I didn't get anything in Adelaide. But you know, so be it. What can you do? You can yeah. maximize your time and opportunity at the right time. Yeah, and I think that wasn't through lack of trying from my end. I certainly was trying to push you to getting those exposure into those two areas. But I think at that time, I guess the good part about that story, the reason why we didn't, is that A, we'd maxed out the borrowing as per the plan, but B, we also had the exposure that we tried to get that we knew would get us to where we needed to get to as well. So as much as having those additional assets would have helped, um, it, it certainly didn't hinder us getting to that. So the property types, um, what were the predominant theme of the property types? Were they apartments? Were they villas? Were they freestanding established no, houses? Yeah, just freestanding established house. The main key was low maintenance um, yep. uh, so that we don't spend too much uh, money just to cover the maintenance. Um, mm. uh, We've we done some for land banking purposes so that yep. eventually later on can be um, bought by developers when the time is right. And um, yeah, main thing is to manage the cash flow um, to keep the portfolio living, yep. alive. Um, yep. Now through the through the times, um, through the different uh, different uh, rate cycle times, so that we can manage the uh, portfolio and let it grow by itself. Yeah, exactly, mate. So I think there's probably a couple of key things there that that we we still we, we're very much focused on within pure property now is that asset type as to what grows best over time historically has always been established freestanding property with a decent land component. And I know, you know working on and, and acquiring the assets within your portfolio in partnership with you and also with my team is that the properties were always, they were relatively vanilla. I mean, some of them were a little bit out of the box. Predominantly, they were off market. Um, they, some of them had higher density land opportunities. Some of them had granny flat opportunities, which you've executed on yes, in, in different right. areas. Um, but when it came down to it, overall, they were basically neutrally geared major CBD locations and capital city locations. They weren't, certainly weren't mining towns. They certainly None, none come with the glossy brochure no. that you attract <laughs> my wife, you know. Every time my wife questioned me, why am I buying an old <laughs> uh, 1960 or 1975 building? You know? Yeah. 
what what's yeah. the catch of that? I said the yeah. catch of the dollar. Yeah, it, it, exactly, exactly. And I think probably the last thing to reiterate there before I sort of ask you where do, what do we end up with um, is, is you mentioned cash flow was essentially the, to, to keep the portfolio alive. And, and I guess I liken cash flow to kind of watering the garden is that you can plant the plants, but if you don't have the cash flow, they won't grow and eventually they'll die. Um, sometimes it's a slow death depending on if we're at La Nina or Vino, but, um, you know, ultimately, and that, and that's kind of like, well, the weather is more or less the interest rates of the time. But if you don't have the cash flow, which comes in regardless of what the weather is, you can't water the, the plants in and essentially they just can't survive regardless of how good the growth is. If you can't hold them, they're as good as redundant. Right. And I think that's the part is that cash flow for us and, and for your instance too, William, is that, you know, cash flow doesn't mean that every property for every investor needs to be neutral. Sometimes we need to actually be, well and truly positive because people are on very limited incomes. But other times we've got higher income earners who don't need it to be neutral, but you know, we might be specifying, hey, look, we can absorb five, seven grand a year negative because we know this will be more of a growth asset. I guess cash flow can mean different things to different people, but we set that criteria specific to, to your portfolio. So, so walk me through, William. So we obviously had a very aggressive sort of three or four year take on trying to build this portfolio to around about around about that eight, eight and a half million dollar price point with about a five, five and a half million dollar debt or 5.7 million dollar debt is what we modeled out. Where did we get to? Because we, we obviously finished the buying phase or the acquisition phase quite some time ago. Where did you end up getting to? Now it's end of 2023. How many properties are in the portfolio? What's the total gross value? What's the approximate debt in the portfolio these days? Uh, probably I would say we've got about... 10 properties uh, yep. now in the portfolio um, with a um, over $10 million um, in, in, um, in uh, asset value. Yep. The, uh, the uh, uh, RMI, um, the loan uh, value ratio is about 45%. Okay. Yeah, so uh, which I'm sitting very comfortably. Um, yep. And um, that I can just still see another cycle growing without too much stress or hassles. Yep. Um, so then we'll just keep letting it run. And then hopefully Absolutely. we become <laughs> now from a small plan, small seed, to now a plan that we can see maybe become a uh, tree later on. Uh, uh, absolutely. And it's, um, yeah. And, and I guess that, that goes back to you know, the, the first step here that, that we really honed in on and we spoke and we do speak still a lot about this is that anyone's ideas are fantastic, but without a plan, you, you really struggle to execute with, with any kind of real outcome. And I think probably where I give you a lot of credit for, William, is that you didn't just choose us, uh, a pure property investment, to be a buyer's agent and property strategist. You also came to us with pretty clear goals. You came up to us with a pretty clear plan. Um, and you were willing, you were very willing to say, look, I realize that this isn't going to be achieved without some hard work, some punishing times, a lot of paperwork, a lot of decisions, a lot of conversations. Um, but, you know, we fast forward seven years as to where we started and we've now worked towards a portfolio that's probably got the best part of five odd million dollars in, in actual gross equity. Um, the cash flow, from what I know, well and truly exceeds, exceeds that sort of $1,500 a week goal that we set out, even in these these times of you know six percent interest rates or more, um, and and I think the other thing that and the big point that you just made there too is that we've kind of only really gone through one full phase of a growth cycle in the last seven or eight years. If we fast forward another fifteen years or even ten years, and we get that second growth cycle from this compounded moment 
of $10 million in, in a gross value in your portfolio at a 5% annualized rate, you know, you're talking a 20 million portfolio, $20 million portfolio within the next 14 or 15 years. We're going to have another chat by then. Exactly. And I guess the beauty is, is that because cash flow is positive, well and truly positive now, we're at the point where the, the reality is to, if it does play out that way, fantastic. If it goes stronger, even better. If it goes less, it doesn't really determine the outcome because your cash flow is there, your growth is there, you've got a huge amount of equity that you could sell off if and when you did choose to. But I guess going back to the point here is that you ended up with, you started with a very clear plan. We ended up executing on that plan pretty much within those months and those years that we outlined. Um, we're at a point now where we're not buying any more property. We certainly are catching up regularly, but I guess to, to round out our conversation now, because we could go on about so many different little bits and pieces within this portfolio. I know we've got property in Hobart, Launceston, we've got property right across the Brisbane market. We talked about buying in Adelaide and, and Perth, but we kind of got to the point of saying, do we need to? Can we get the finance or should we be comfortable with where we are? Those two markets in general, in addition to your Sydney assets, which you had originally, have played out exactly as we wanted and planned to. But that being said, and, and you know, credit to you, mate, because you've got to a point which most envy and you haven't done it with a huge additional income that most people are going to say they don't have. And knowing your finances not to divulge, but... You know, you're not on a position where you know, you're not a seven-figure salary-earning family. You started, you got aggressive, you took chances where you knew those risks were calculated, but you did something about it. But that being said, there's always going to be regrets. And I know we talked about a couple there. Um, and you've been in the property industry as far as an investor now, and you're still an avid property, I call you a property geek to a degree because you like to stay interested in it. And, and it's something that you still stay wise with because I know you talk to a lot of your friends and family about property quite regularly as well. Um, if you had your time again and you were going to buy that first investment or alternatively you had already bought investments and you wish you did something a little bit differently, if you had one piece of advice for the younger William who was still keen on fishing but still wanted to you know, get, get as much time on his hands as he possibly could to spend it with his family and doing the things that he enjoyed but if you could reflect back on that last 10, 15 years of investing actively right across Australia, what's the one thing that you would do differently and potentially what's the one thing that you would do more of if you had your time again? It wouldn't be one. It would be a few. Okay. <laughs> I tried um, to limit it to one, but you give me those few. First one is dream bigger. Like Even it. at that time, we were ambitious. We were thinking like, wow, can we do it? You know, But we should have dreamed even bigger because we should have maximized the lower interest rate cycle at the time we had. Yep. Second thing is after 2019, after we purchased a few properties, I start to lose my interest in work. I don't look for promotions anymore, <laughs> which I if I have, if I work a little bit more harder at work, yep. or pretending to be working a little bit more at work, <laughs> I would have get my pay rise and then I can fund my properties portfolio even better. These are the things that I should have done better. I mean, I'm not, I'm not regretting I didn't do it, but I'm yep. that these are the things that I could have done better at the time. And asset selection-wise, is there anything in the assets that we've bought over the time that you wish you did more of or less of, or is there ideally yeah, sort of same, it, same? I... I look for things that I know what I'm looking for, but at the mm. same time, do we have that opportunity at that time? Mm. You know, 
when there were times that we could have a few options in our hands, we could only make the best decision at the time that we could. Mm. So every time when I come to you and say, hey, we're ready, I got my pre-approval done, then you you will give me a few different options to look at. It's not that we don't have any options. Yeah. It's not that we are, William, we can only buy this one. No, never come back to me like that. No, no, agree. We always have a few options available. And then Mm. we just analyze at that time what was the best decision at that time. So we make those decisions. So, I mean, in terms of regret, there there can't be any regret because we've we've gone through a full um, process Mm. to do our investment. Completely, mate. And, and I guess to recap on that, those I'm so happy for you to hear that come out of your mouth, mate, because so often that's probably that. And we go back to those those two quintessential regrets that I hear most property investors who have they have the benefit of hindsight. Investors who are starting out, unfortunately, don't have hindsight, so you'll only learn those lessons 10, 15, 20 years down the track. But the first one you said, which resonates so much with me, and I think so much with so many people, is dream bigger. Don't let your own pre-con- preconditioned experiences or what I people told you. I let my theory at the time yeah. restrict my imagination. 100%. My ambitions. And, and, and I think that that's, that's so valuable for anyone. And if you don't get the answer you want from someone, speak to someone else. And, and it's not that's to say not- that people can do anything they want at any stage. I don't think we need to you know, be unrealistic about that. But you had the, the means, you also had the time and you had the, I guess the ambition to want to get to a much bigger place, you probably could have, yeah, it, we've achieved some amazing things. We'll probably have years. 20 properties by now. If well, we that's speak. it. And, and it might not be, you know, and I guess I, we've never been yeah, a big, big It's not year, about I the guess. numbers. It's about no. how much you can achieve for that golden time. Exactly, exactly. And I think the second point that you also mentioned, mate, and I think this is a very important part for me, to always also reinforce to anyone who's a would-be property investor and a listener or someone who has already started their portfolio is as much as property can grow in value, property is always a game of leverage. And we spoke about this right at the start, is that why you chose property is leverage. But leverage is only it's only achievable when you can show that you can repay the debt. Now, repaying the debt to the bank is your rent that you collect from the property, but it's also your income. Now you mentioned that you know you kind of lost a bit of Lost a bit of focus and 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 ambition at work, and like you said, if, if that ended up resulting in a fifty grand pay rise over the next three or four years, you then all of a sudden say, "Well, if I got that that pay rise, but we made that, that within the more? first two years of our performance." <laughs> and that's the challenging part because then you say, "Well, mate, look, you put more time in your property portfolio, and you made millions in there." So it's it's a it's a double edged sword, I guess. But I think to that point is that you can't build property portfolios without an income. So. I think that's the key part here is that I, I, we don't become delusional and saying just because you've got cash or equity um, doesn't mean you can go and do what you want. You still need to work hard. You still need to make sure you maintain a job at least while you're building the portfolio. And study the cash flow game. Completely, completely. And, and, and I think you've become quite a master in managing your cash flow. And that's something that we do regularly when we do catch up is we don't necessarily talk too much more about growth and equity in the portfolio. It's more, hey, this interest rate's coming off fixed to variable the rents here, what do you think we should do? Is it time to do X, Y, Z? Sometimes we don't, there's nothing that we can suggest to do. Other times there's small tweaks, other times there's larger things that might have to happen and that might even eventuate in selling certain assets. But it's a constant part of that process. It's not just one decision, 
and we let it go for the rest of, of its time. Um, so if it's a long term investment damage, you have to put in the long term effort. You absolutely, yeah. I love it, buddy. I love it, mate. I think we're going to catch up in, in, in a few, hopefully for the listeners, we might try to do this in, in a few months or years' time and, and re, probably not rehash years on, time, not, not, not 20 years, no, no, 100%. <laughs> we'll do it before that, but we'll talk about well and truly before what's happened between now and then. But but I want to say thank you again, buddy, because you know, obviously you've given your time to, to explore and, and open up, I guess, where you started, what you've achieved, and, and some of the lessons learned along the way. I'm sure that's a lot of the listeners will take some some really good understanding as to some of these big lessons in here, which the big one, dream bigger. The second one is make sure that you manage your cash flow. Um, and, and really, nothing's nothing's really achievable without a crystal clear plan and executing on that plan, which you've done in spades, uh, is always going to be the number one aspect, which without, without the execution, any plan is, is essentially redundant. And I think that's what you've done, mate, is that you plan very well, but the thing that we work together on is we executed on that plan quite aggressively, and it's led to um, exceeding those goals and getting you to a position where, where you uh, effectively don't have to focus too much on work anymore. You choose when and where, and uh, know you spend a lot more time fishing than probably what you did seven or eight years ago. Yes, and I'm truly grateful that I have uh, we have gone through this journey together. Absolutely, and, um, I set out the target myself to walk out on my own terms from work when I'm 50 years old. And luckily, we have already achieved that goal. So I walked away last year and I haven't looked back. That's amazing, mate. It um, puts a big smile 50, on face. Before I turned 50. Well before. And, and, and for anyone and who's Catching the fish in, of my lifetime. Uh, absolutely. And I've seen some of, the, some of those catches. And, and that's, that's a big one, is that uh, anyone who's listening, and we might even be, if William's okay with it, I might actually attach a photo of that fish of a lifetime. I think it was a, of a, from memory, it was a was it a black kingfish? From memory, it was a yeah, cobia. Cobia, thirty three. Cobia, cobia. There you go. And that would have been. I guess that the point is that wouldn't have been caught if you were working, because ultimately Not, it was caught at a time I'll, where you I'll chose be to die. I was But I guess that, that that was only achieved because of what property allowed you to do, which was That's take right. your time, take time off work, and spend it on the things that you really enjoy doing. And I think it was tagged and released for any listeners as well, wasn't it? it was right. out it there was- to fight another day. After after a fifty five minutes fight, I promise the fish I'll let it go. Amazing, amazing, mate! I love it. All right, but we'll look. We'll we'll, um, we'll certainly catch up soon. And thank you again for sharing your story with everyone. Thanks, Paul. Much appreciated. All right, welcome back, everyone. It's Phil Tarrant, co-host of the Pure Property Podcast with Paul Glossop. I have in the studio with me Paul Glossop, who you've just been listening to or watching, having a chat with William one of um, the clients of Pure Property Investment and obviously Paul Glossop is uh, the founder and director of that business. So you're still pretty hands-on then with your clients. You don't sort of sit in the shadows now and um, don't get involved. You're still no, right, that's, right, it's right. That's what you do. The vast it? majority of my time that I spend is is exactly what we just listened to. Um, mm. You know, setting the strategy, executing on the strategy, making sure we follow up, make tweaks when necessary, you know, rectify any issues that sit there and yeah, you know, keep redirecting the ship to get it as close to where we want to get to as possible. Mm. And, you know, recalibrating along the way is, is the very essence of smart property investment. You can see um, that's what William's done in conjunction with, with Paul. You can see you guys get on as well. So yeah, to our point earlier on about choosing your buyer's agent, you've got to probably have a bit of chemistry there, right? Definitely. And, and it's no different to anyone who's been investing for a short time, long time. You're probably thinking people like your mortgage broker, people like your accountant in some mm. stages. If you're a property investor already, you've probably been through or might already have good property managers, people you can just pick up the phone and speak to and just get good, honest information and advice when you want it and really get 
get those people on your side. Once you've got them, don't let them go. Yeah. Well, there you have it. So do you reckon he's happy, William? Oh, but I, I think people would have gauged that. You probably see on, on the video if you've mm. if you engaged by that way, but you probably hear it in his voice as well. He, he smiles a lot, William, and it's not just because his property portfolio has done really well, but I think he's, uh, he's probably got the right mindset is that property's not, and, and if anyone goes back through some of those key points, you know, the key part here is that property is not passive and he's probably a big advocate to say if anyone who wants to buy property think you buy it and you come back in 10 years and you've done nothing and you expect it to all be smooth sailing, you're wrong because mm. he's certainly not going to advocate saying I do nothing but he certainly has made sure that, you know, he talked about the fact that he looked at a couple of different options up front, especially when he did a big, big equity release to get started. He looked at the options of the stock market and equities and he thought, well, that's a very active way. And when we say active, you know, that is like literally three to four or five hours actively every day trading, trying to put shorts and options in place. That's and heavy going. It's very, and he's, he's certainly clever enough to know that that's not what he wanted. Um, but also knew that leverage was the other big, big part. So control and leverage was the big parts that he, chose property on as far as why that was the vehicle. Yeah, he executed and he certainly didn't hesitate. He constantly was buying, then going back through the process, conversation with the broker, then making sure that the money was there, the equity was there, the cash flow was there to push to number two, to push number three, push right up to building that portfolio to north of $10 million in total value and south of $5 million in total debt. And ultimately, you know, that upfront goal that we had of circa $1,500 a week net was achieved at about two, bit over two grand a week net. And, and you know, that testament to him is that, yeah, we selected really good assets that, that averaged way beyond the market average over that seven odd years that we bought those assets for. But when it comes down to it, someone has to make the decision. I'm not the one who's borrowing the money. I'm not the one who's signing the contracts. William's the one and his wife are the ones who, who made the decision to get busy and actually, you know, make sure that they took control of where their destiny is. And now he's at the point where he works part-time, fishes full-time mm. and um, yeah, does what he wants with his time as opposed to what he doesn't want to do and is forced into uh, into that longer position that he would otherwise be in. I mean, he's probably 15 years expedited his working career mm. by choice. Oh, that's good. Do you reckon he would be happy staying like that? <laughs> time will tell. Yeah. Uh, one thing I won't stop doing is, is Will and I, we will catch up regularly and, and regardless of whether he's actively buying property, which he's not anymore. Um, well, he'd struggle these days because the bank probably wouldn't give yeah, him any more debt. But he's still, right? got, I mean, he's still got a property portfolio yeah. and a lot of that's held in trust and, and you know, that, that, that will still allow for borrowings per se, but he's certainly a position and, and someone to say, well, he had a good why. Mm. As a, why is he doing it? And he wanted to buy time. And he didn't want to do it to buy other things. You know, he's an avid fisherman. He's an example, but he doesn't own a boat. He doesn't want to own a boat because he knows that boats are expensive. Um, so he's, as much as he- So he's got lots of friends that have boats? And he, he pays pays to go on charters when he wants to. Oh, you he? know, guess what? He's like, I want to go and try and catch Spanish mackerel. I'm going to fly up the coast and I'm going to get in a fancy boat and it's going to take me out and that's going to cost me a few grand. Yeah. But I'm not going to own a boat and sail it up there and go through that process. But I guess to my point there is that, you know, he had a plan, he executed on it and, and he really understands that he's still, even though- he is probably dialed back from work. Mm. You know, whether he goes back and works more, I think he's kind of person where he, he has a choice, right? He's really content in doing yeah. what he does. And certain people just aren't. I know you aren't, Phil. I'm mm. probably not either. Even if the, the finances were taken care of, you know, would we sit back and want to fish every day? I do like fishing. I do Wait, like no, surfing. You couldn't, you couldn't pay me to I fish every day. <laughs> I know you couldn't. But I think to this point, right? Like, yeah, would, horses would, you be would you be tinkering around and, you know, doing whatever you want to do at home? Probably. Would you spend, spend more time with the kids where possible? Probably. Would you spend more time with your wife doing other things? Probably. Mm. But again, it's these are all the things that I think by choice. Will he 
will he sit back and do it that way? Maybe not. You know, he, and, and I'd like to probably do an update in six months, 12 months and figure out because he's kind of at this early stage of a semi-retirement. Yeah, you hear all the time. I know lots of guys and girls who have done it and they just go, they, they, they just go, yeah, it was great for three months and then yeah. I hated it. Yeah, completely. You know, if you, then they, and then they try and re-engage and reconnect and you know what, like if you're good, you can sort of get stuck back in. The, the question I have though, and it's something that come up as part of the discussion. So we had a principal place of residence, which he'd done well out of, yep. which, which was an enabler for investing in property. He had one investment property. Correct. And he did nothing for ages. He didn't, no, for, for a vast number of what, years. Why didn't he do years. it? Like, did he get a, what was his aha moment where he went, oh, God, uh, you know, I'm messing around here. I, I think it was work. So mm. he was very early in a career and he wasn't in a low paying job per se, but he was in a career where the trajectory could have been steep. But there was a trade-off for that, like most careers, especially mm. corporate, is that if you want to get to the next ladder and then 10, 10 more rungs up the ladder, there's time commitment, there's, there's sacrificing other things. And you know, to his admission, he spent a good few years trying to climb that ladder and kind of realized that A, he probably wasn't as good or as clever as some of his peers, and B, he realized that property, when he reflected back, he's like, hang on a second, I've got these two assets, they've grown this much in value over that same time and I'm trying to get to a point where my pay can go from X to Y and let's, even let's say it goes from 150 grand to 300 grand. Let's say he doubles his salary in mm. a five, eight year period of time and then maybe even goes to, to doubling that again. He kind of realized that the time commitment involved versus if I still put that same time in. So that was a, probably a five to seven year time frame where he realized that I'm spending this time trying to get here but I could probably, based on what's happened in the past from property, I could probably get there but with a lot less effort from my work and a lot more time put into the property side of things. And that's where that sort of that divergence happened and that where he made that clear decision. So I think property is going to be the vehicle. Let's get busy. And do you see that with a lot of your clients where they where they get a taste of property and go, mm, okay, that's, yeah, all right. I sort of get how this works. Let me do more. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But the, yeah, the the doubters and the skeptics are always the ones who look at the yesteryears and the boomers and what they got out of their portfolio and say, that'll never happen again and it's never going to be available for me or I just can't do it. It's the doers yeah. who are, yeah, even the Gen Xs, the Gen Ys, the millennials, they're there now and they're the ones who realize saying, look, if it's meant to be, it's up to me type of scenario and they'll get there. And then when they get that first taste of it, you know, we've gone through a two or three year growth cycle, we went through a two or three year flat cycle, we went through a two or three year growth cycle behind that and mm. so on and so forth. It's when they go through that, even if it's an early stage of one cycle, they look back and they think, hang on a second, I've just bought a $400,000 asset and I just got revalued four years later and it's worth $600,000. And all I had to do there was answer a few emails. You know, I had a bit of running repairs, maintenance, and maybe it cost me three, four, five grand a year to get to that position. Now, mm. granted, we might have just went through a purple patch, but even if it was half that and I bought for 400, spent 30, 40 grand in costs, and maybe even it made me 50 grand growth in three or four years' time. And they start to do the reverse math and saying, well, how long does it take me to save 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 grand? A lot of the time, people are like, that's a year's worth of work. And I just made that by just by acting. And they think, well, imagine if I did that five times over over the next 20 years. And that's that's the aha moment for for, for most people. Yeah. For most people. and, and it's good to see, look, I, I think the, the key takeaway for me when I watched the, the discussion you had with William was around execution. Yep. Like everything comes down to just flawless execution. Like the, a lot of people have got grand plans and schemes and you might have a really good strategy, you might have it all mapped out, but it's how well you execute it is, is really going to make or break it. Do you think he could have done more 
I've got some views on it, but do, yeah. do you think he could have done? I reckon he could have gone harder or faster. Or was he redlining the whole way through? No. So, so if if I was honest, then if he's honest, then some of the biggest feedback, and I always try to ask this question at the end of those types of interviews, is that the advice for the first time investor or a younger William. Uh, he's he's you know people have just listened into it, and you would have heard that the resounding part is that he would have dreamt bigger. Mm. He wouldn't have been restricted probably, and as much as he executed, I mean, he he had a pretty grand vision here, and he executed pretty flawlessly. But if he had his was time that again, his vision or was it your vision? That was a combination. So he was yeah. definitely. He was but he def- owned the vision. He, he owned the he vision. He said it was his vision. Yeah, he, completely. he claimed it as his vision. It, exactly. And, yeah. and I'm not going to take credit for that. He wanted, he was, he was you know, relatively aggressive. But I think in retrospect, he could have done more sooner. Big thing here is that he didn't go down the, the traditional path of big four banks and conforming I was lenders. going to ask you that because he went down the path. And I know you sort of put it in the front end of the strategy was to um, use non major banks. It had to. You had to, and you had to pay more for money because you know, we're up front to say, mate, if we want to get here, you realise that we're not going to be able to conform with you know with the, the majority of the big fours and the, the PAYG. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So so you, you can constrain by your income and multiples of it, but then you've got to go to the non-conforming. You've got to pay more in interest. You've got to mm. budget that into your cash flows. There's all kinds of additional fees. So all those things that we know that once you get to a point, you have to push different ways and different avenues. Good broker to set the strategy, but being comfortable saying, I know I'm going to pay more for my money. I'm okay with that because the multiplier is going to be a payoff 10 times what I know the cost is going to be. But dreaming bigger was his resounding feedback to himself. If he could say it again, eight years prior, he's like, mm. William, do more because ultimately the pie gets bigger as long as you control the cash flow. And you get that a lot from investors when yeah. they, so I, I always <laughs> say it, I could have gone twice as hard early days. But does his principal place of resident thrown into that 10 million bucks as, as total asset base? Uh, no, it's separate to that. It's separate, separate to, to that, yeah. So I look at the numbers, like, you know, the smart property investment portfolio at its peak was worth about 10 million bucks. It yep. wasn't delivering 1,500 bucks a no. week in positive. No. Like, far from it. Yep. So I, I sit there and just go, oh. I don't know. The numbers don't work for me. I said this is my initial my reaction to it. I go, mm, don't know about that. And this was built at a time when interest rates were, I don't know, probably two and a bit percent, two and a half, maybe three no, percent. He was paying. The higher at the early stages. Because he so was 2017, 18, 19. Okay. Yeah, come and then back they a came bit. down, and then they come, got to come back up. But I guess the key here is because a lot he, of people, a lot of people say you, it's hard to make good positive returns off resi property. A hundred percent. And and yeah. I guess if, if you go back to the details in that that actual interview with, with William is that the reality of where his position is, it wasn't just by built by prices going up and rents going up and all of a sudden he's just got this huge positive surplus. Essentially it was buy, execute quite aggressively, prices went up and what he's done there is he's taken money off the table incrementally as he's gone. So he definitely doesn't hold the same portfolio that we built. He's taken money off the table. He's sold a few assets. He's also added a granny flat to two assets. He's also bought commercial assets in there, which were high cash flow. And then from there, that combination of those two different things, coupled with the previous assets that he's held, and then selling a couple of those assets, taking that profit off the table, has then allowed him to reduce the LVR to well below 50%. And he's only held assets which are actually, he intentionally wants to hold the assets which are higher in cash flow, not necessarily higher in growth anymore. So they're the properties which have got the higher cash flow, they've got the commercial asset and they've got the granny flat assets in there. There's no intention of selling those assets. And that was by design. It wasn't to say, you know, we're going to build granny flats on assets and then sell them. There's no point in that really vast majority of the time. You, you're not going to make the money you spend on those types of purchases. Mm. But it was intentionally saying we build with a combination of growth assets, assets with development upside, some that are purely just focused on commercial, uh, sorry, and, and and cash flow. And then at the end, we start to then think about how do we reduce debt? 
increase cash flow. And that's going to be a process ongoing because there are certainly assets in there which you'll probably still part ways with incrementally as we go. But you know, obviously there's some tax considerations that if you make a big capital gains, you potentially don't want to sell yeah, all I was going to say, you might, has he been well. hammered on tax? Like, has he got cash still kicking around in offsets? There's, there's certainly some cash sitting in offsets. And I think yeah. he's made sure one thing, because you know, when you get to the point of you decide to work less, obviously your POYG is less. So mm. you want to have more liquidity. So there's some of the other considerations that if you start working less and your actual income remains less, you kind of want to have access to money, but you can't access money as easily when your income's less. So going knocking on the door of the bank to say, I want an equity release is certainly not as easy a conversation when your income starts dropping. So they're the parts of those things that we discuss when we do catch up regularly is that yeah. we actually just dive back into this and say, well, what's the plan from here? Or, or you know, what are we planning to do from the next 12 months? What's the plans with your work? Where are these properties at? Is it time to maybe consider selling that asset? If we want to increase cash flow again, is it the right time from a tax consideration? Then the accountant comes into the conversation and say, no, let's wait to this financial year, or yes, this financial year you'll work because your income's lower on paper. So having a capital gain event will actually work this year, so on and so forth. Yeah, you're really in a good good accountant if you're doing this sort of stuff and also a mortgage broker because we'll struggle to get more debt, right? However, 100%. the debt that he has, as long as he's paying the mortgage repayments, the bank ain't going to ask too many questions. Not so to your point, you, you want to, any cash that you got, you want it to be liquid, right? If you don't want to be paying off those loans because good luck trying to get that money back out because the banks just won't refinance. Well, likely not to refinance. So they're going to be really strategic about building cash buffers moving forward and you know, parking that mortgage is great. That means you're offsetting. So so what do you reckon he's actually paying on what amount do you reckon he's actually paying mortgage repayments on? As far as the total debt amount, yeah, oh, yeah. it's probably after, after it's probably circa three and a half to four million. Without yeah. going through that detail too much with him there, I think it was mm. circa three and a half four million dollars. It was a bit more than that in debt, but then after offsets, it was about three and a half four million, which yeah. worked out to be about circa three hundred odd thousand. I think give or take in interest repayments. Yep, and then the income after all said on that was about one hundred seventy five, one hundred eighty five total gross income um, minus your running repairs, maintenance, property management fees. Mortgage repayments um, left with you know sort of a circa 130, 135 minus tax, depending on how some of those were held in personal homes, some of them in trusts. Then you get to that point of circa sort of that two grand a week. Yeah. But you know, I guess the other big thing too is that you're holding ten million dollars in assets. You know, if if we're holding this, even if it's partly cash flow positive, even if it's neutral, you know, and William's a very patient person. Yeah. You know, if he sits around for another ten years, where does that ten million oh, dollars be? A very different it, looking portfolio. Uh, exactly. Yeah, you probably sell one property, you pay the debt off yeah. and it's completely unencumbered, and that, right? And this is why, you know, property is a game of patience. Absolutely. A lot of people forget that they're in strategic way too much patience. of a rush. <laughs> so yeah, strategic patience and and he started early this is the point. He's he started early, but it was a bit of a false start. Yeah. And, and you see that all the time, especially people who buy their principal place of residence, you know, when they get a job, they get the mm. borrowing capacity, they buy a home and then they sort of go into life and life might, might include kids, it might include a career, all those things. And typically people, it's not until they get like 10, 15 years down the track and they're in their 40s, 50s and they think, well, hang on, we've got very little debt, but, and, and I might be on track to pay off my home very soon, but so what? That's not going to give you any that, money every That's month. probably one of the biggest penny drop moments mm. that I see now in my life as a, as a property buyer's agent strategist is that- you get the people early, but you also get the people in their 40s and 50s who have got immense potential, but also probably only just coming to realize that I could have a $5 million home paid off. Nothing changes, yep. unfortunately. Or I could have a million dollar home that's leveraged at 800 grand, but I've taken out a bunch of equity, but I've also got a $5 million property portfolio that might be neutrally geared. I'm on the same trajectory. I'm still going to work till I'm retired, but my options at retirement 
are vastly different if I take one option versus the other. And well, it's your not principal place of residence isn't going to give you cash flow. It's not going to give it to you. No. And you can sell it and downsize to get a big chunk of cash and put it into the stock market. You know, that's what a lot of people do. You sound a lot like Robert Kiyosaki these days. Not the that's stock market says. part, but yeah. but, <laughs> but it ain't giving you cash flow, I guess. Okay. Is it's what not it, giving you cash flow. And, and it's the false economy that I think most people are adhered to when we talk about, you know, that mortgage component in your home is mm. that that's the, the one of the biggest fallacies that I think sit out there that we've been quite indoctrinated with. Yeah, it's this great Australian dream to have your own home paid off so no one can take it from you. Yeah. But even now they're changing the pension rules, right? They're Correct. changing the pension rules right now where they're saying, because once upon a time when you got to pension, um, particularly if you needed to go down certain pathways, your principal place of residence was exempt from the asset rules. Now, the current government has gone, no, 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 let's not do that anymore. Yeah. So so it's a liability rather than an asset now Correct. to actually have your owner-occupied home loan completely paid off at that point. I'm not Com- giving financial advice. <laughs> but it's potentially a, potentially a liability. Exactly. Well, yeah. it's, it's definitely not going to be a benefit. No. That's, I think that's becoming very, very obvious. And it's, tell you, you know, like if you need the pension uh, and – your means tested on the value of your principal place of residence, you, you've got to sell that in yeah, order to, you've got to sell it in order to actually get money out of it. Yep. So you, you need to realize some sort of equity event. Yep. Now, if you sell it and it's your principal place of residence, well, you're not going to get taxed on it for the, for the moment. Who knows what they're going to do moving forward. Yep. But yeah, risky business. Absolutely. Risky business. So what's William going to do, you reckon, for 10 years, just chill? But I think I'm pretty confident that for the next 12 months he'll be mm. he'll be chilling and doing a lot of what he planned to do. To get, he's, you know, he's worked very hard and, and done a lot to get in a position that he's in. After that, um, William's probably listening to this. Uh, I think he's probably got a smile on his face thinking, you know what, I, <laughs> I'm happy to challenge you that I'll, I won't keep doing what I'm doing for 12 months more. But um, I'd be curious, put it that way, after 12 months to see, you know, what is a life of working very part-time and, you know, doing all the things you like to do because the biggest challenge is young. He's like he's mid forties, right? But Mate, none of his mates retired yet, no, and that's the biggest <laughs> challenge. Uh, you know, you knock around with people who are financially independent, mm. and you're like, well, hang on, you know, everyone around me is locked in by a whole bunch of other decisions. You're like, well, what do I do with my time? No, Some I, people I, I do like hanging out by themselves. Mate, a lot maybe before. they do go get a good suntan, yeah, whatever, yeah. float your boat, but. Uh, I've seen it happen. People go back in the workforce just so they've got something to do, yeah. people to hang out with, so right? Bunnings, they, they Bunnings do a, is full of them. They, yeah, <laughs> they do a lot more. Uh, they do a lot more long lunches on that basis. Yeah. How, how do you think he would score himself if you sort of go back in time to when yeah. you first caught up with with William and you said, "This is the strategy," and here we are with our strategy largely delivered? Do you reckon he'd score himself pretty well? I think I think he'd score himself if we sort of broke it into what he could have done. The propensity of that five years of hiatus when he could have done a lot, mm. he pro- basically could have done the same thing the previous five years. He could be five years ahead. He could be. He probably could be more because then the compounding effect probably doubles yeah. that. He's probably like 10, 15 years of where he could have been if he started early 2011, 12, 13. Yeah. But I'd probably score himself a three or four out of 10 in that rate. But I think from the point of actually he, he corralled all of the information he needed. And then once I, I can say that once he engaged us within about three weeks, we were on the journey to the first purchase and we executed on, I think it was eight or nine maybe even 10 assets over a four-year period, he, he remained busy and consistent for that entire time. So I think based on what he did, the asset selection, the location, the balance of you know across Queensland, Tasmania, and, and Sydney properties, the mix was right. The timing was certainly right where we got those assets. The cash flow was right. The growth was right. I think he'd score himself a good eight and a half or nine out of 10 there. And how do you think he'd score you guys? I reckon he's, he's 100% happy with everything you've done or what, what would you guys do differently? <sighs> It's a risky one for me because I sat in the position there where you kind of don't know how hard 
someone wants to go, they say that they want to go hard and they want to get aggressive, but you mm. also, I also have my reservations to push too hard too soon with certain clients, even if they are bullish and they can get the money because I, I still want people to understand you go from one or two, a home plus an investment to holding seven or eight properties, you know, as well as I do, Phil. And when I was talking to William, I personally had a large portfolio take the the growth and the assets uh, aside. Hassle. It is a hassle. And you don't want to burden people to, you don't want to undersell what it means to be a large-scale property investor because it is it is a responsibility. There are things that come outside of the growth and all of the nice things that you have to deal with. Mm. So I think he'd be very happy. He probably would have asked me to push harder if he had his time again because I think he's realized that he's actually a very good He's a very good landlord. He's quite mm. a pragmatic, quite a calm person. So he deals with those stressful times in such a really good way. He's got very good manner and tone with people and he remains very even keeled. I probably learnt throughout that that he could be pushed a bit harder and he was comfortable being pushed harder. I think he'd probably score us probably an 8 or 9 out of 10. I think a 10 out of 10 for the result, to be honest with you, if I'm transparent. But I think I could have pushed him harder in retrospect and he probably would have liked me to maybe crack the whip a little bit more and not yeah. be so, you know, maybe sideline sitting for a couple of moments where we could have done more. And and in the big scheme of things when, you know, you're working with clients and say they come and see you and say, look, well, I want to go reasonably hard at this. The speed at which he operated, how would that compare to how, you know, you, you work it's with faster. other people? It's, it's a lot faster. A lot faster. Not wouldn't say a lot faster than a lot of people, but I guess most faster people. Faster than most. the most because most, A, they don't have – the finances in place like he did all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people, even if they have a million dollars in equity and two million in borrowing capacity, as an example, let's say hypothetically you earn a quarter of a million as a household income, you've got a million and a half property that's your principal place of residence, you've got no, 500 grand debt. So you can go and harvest 500 grand in equity tomorrow, no problems, and you might have another million in borrowing capacity. So you could probably go and go, hard. go and buy three properties in a heartbeat if you wanted to. Mm. Most people say, I want to just start with one because I just want to understand how it goes through. And that's that's normal. And I'm not uncomfortable. And I, if someone sort of had that position, even though I could buy three, start with one, and their position was, hey, I want to get to a three in a short term eventually, but I just want to say, let's go softly, softly. Most of the time, properties are pretty slow moving vehicles. So if we're going to buy one asset in the first six months, then one in the next six, and then one in the six after, that's still pretty aggressive. Mm. If someone said, look, I can buy all three in the first three months, I'd say, look, oh, probably careful what you wish for there because that's a lot of paperwork. And you know, the downside versus the upside, you know, probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't warrant it. I'm probably more comfortable for most to just start with the first. And then after the first settled in, we typically catch up six weeks after for most people in that type of position to say, okay, we bought one, you know what you're in for now. Are you comfortable pushing hard for the next two if that were the example? And they might say, no, look, let's just go to that original plan, first purchase, let's recycle six weeks, six months, sorry, 12 months afterwards. We typically are going to be, I guess, we're going to be warranted by their cadence and what they're after and their comfort yeah. zones as well. And how many clients sort of go, I want to go hard and go, oh, let's just get the first one. And they go, no, I no, never want to do that again. That was horrible, stressful, horrible. If I'm if I'm completely honest, I would mm. say probably one in 30, one in 40, I reckon yeah. would probably be- They just and, go, don't want to do that again. And, and it's through nothing more than just the experience of going from signing a contract to seeing a building and pest report, we'll dissect the building and pest report for them. But Which always like, look bad. They always look bad. But I mean, irrespective, that it's daunting because there's a 60 page document. We are, you know, typically some people want to go through the 60 page document word mm. for word. They'll also want to review the mortgage document, which sometimes can be a 50 page document word for word. Then they might want to go through and canvas 10 property managers where we might have already pre selected one or two. Then they might want to pre-select every single application and then they might want to look at the quantity surveyors report and say, look, you missed this, gain that. And then they, these are the people who you realize after going through it all, irrespective of 
the property itself, the experience is just too overwhelming for them. And mm-hmm. that's fine. I think as long as the purchase isn't going to you know, be a completely and utterly bad financial decision for them, the rest they'll learn along the way. And we've definitely you definitely get that when people just realize they're not cut out for it. Yeah. It's fair enough. And looking at William's portfolio, do you think he's a bit light on commercial? Would have would have you sort of consider he's chasing a, yield? That's a really interesting question, Phil, because if you asked him that question three years ago, he would have said one hundred percent he is. Yeah. But the irony is he actually sold one of his commercials recently in there. And this is testament to the fact that people were buying commercial and, and I'm not going to speak about my clients, but I'd speak to commercial property became very in vogue about three or four years ago mm. for a period of time where interest rates for commercial debt went from circa five, six, seven percent to two or three percent, pretty much within a year. It went went dropped. But yields, net yields and you know, five year leases and and I own commercial property, you own commercial property, Phil, you would have seen this in your own portfolio. They basically yields stayed where they were. So i.e. six percent net return on a three plus three, let's say a million dollar asset. That looks like yeah, somewhere around about sixty grand a year. If you had the whole thing debted at three percent, that's thirty grand a year. You're making a thirty grand arbitrage. What happened in the last eighteen months is that that thirty grand net profit went immediately. If you weren't fixed, and most people are sort of rolling off those fixed periods now into variable, they're rolling into six, seven. If you're holding an SMSF, would be in the eight percent for mm. those commercial debts. All of a sudden, that net return may have increased three percent, five percent, seven percent per annum over the last two or three years, I can almost unequivocally say that if you bought three years ago and you were cash flow positive, you're probably neutral now. So what happens when commercial debt's neutral? Commercial investments typically don't appreciate anywhere near the same way in value because most investors are buying them on a yield perspective. So if you asked him the question three years ago, absolutely. If you asked him the question now, he's thankful that he didn't load up too heavy because ultimately residential becomes that essential need that most people need, which mm. is shelter. Yeah, the you know whether or not commercial assets appreciate in value at the same or different speed to residential is is for debate, and we can leave that for another time. Uh, but again, it's got to work for him, right? Completely, and, and this is what it's all about. So you know, to the point, he's happy with his outcome. Mm. Uh, you can sit around and go, oh, oh, should have done that. What if this? What if that? You know, yeah, it's just, it's nights no, are hypothetical. Yeah. So he's got the portfolio. Once, how, how, how long is it taking him now or how much time, energy and effort is he putting into managing it? Quarterly, he's, he's typically putting in about a day every quarter, all? deep dive, and then he's answering emails, yeah, bits yeah. and pieces. So so is he is he sort of super focused on the numbers or he just gets the stuff coming in. He, he gets it. He gets his it. statements. And he knows yeah. it automates, you know, like any good property investor, mm. everything's automated, direct debited, catch up with your accountant regularly. And you know, when I say regularly, now it's probably more just annually because he's not buying, he's not selling, he's just yeah. holding. Mm. It's pretty low hands-on. So his tax returns more about probably tax effectiveness. Yep. 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 That's that's the conversation. It's like the old school conversation of if you've got a job and you, know, you pay tax, you go back and say, oh, well, you claim your sunglasses, claim, claim your sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> well, they sunscreen. stopped all of that uh, yeah. a little while ago in the budget, they, they you know, where indeed. you could actually fly to the Gold Coast to yeah, visit your property. Yeah, that's not there anymore. No, no. it's not. No. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all gone. Um, and, and did he do well in terms of all the depreciation stuff and, and everything? Like he's, he's ticked all the boxes, pretty squeaky clean. Yeah, definitely. I mean, maximized where possible, but most of these assets that we bought for him were, were bought after the changes to, to essentially the tax rule back in mm. 2017 from a, a uh, depreciation and quantity surveying perspective. So you couldn't claim all the things that you could on on plant and equipment and, and capital works 
that he could when he bought anyway because none of these properties are brand new. So there was some that were claiming some plant equipment, et cetera, the commercial properties a bit more, mm. but it wasn't certainly wasn't the provision as to why he bought these properties. It certainly wasn't to minimize tax and maximize the overall net figure. They were bonuses as opposed to the, the real reason why most of these properties or all of these properties were bought. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for sharing William's story. Oh, all good, mate. There's so a couple of crackers to come. This year. Yeah, well, what else you got for us? What's what's in the wings? Mate, we've got, I've it's got, going to be a long podcast. I apologise, everyone. <laughs> but uh, I think there's a couple of interesting ones around self-managed super that I'm not going to go through too much detail there, but a couple of clients that we've worked on who have bought and actually sold self-managed super residential properties okay. and then recycling that profit into other properties. Really in, interesting. In super. In, still in super. Yeah, because once still, it's in there, you can't, you can't get, get it get out. out. Well, it was always in there, right? Yeah. So it wasn't sort of magically appeared in there. But mm. also, there's a couple other investors who are at much earlier stages and younger. Um, so we've got one in particular who's sub-25, bought their first property a couple of years ago, went overseas, took a, a working first employment overseas, bought their first property before they left, come back, and now they're looking to go to property number two. And a really, really good example as to what you can do really young on probably a really a low budget. Buyer. Well, well uh, time will be. tell. TikTok. Yeah. TikTok. TikTok, TikTok. We'll get stuck in. Um, and it's good to show and tell the stories from right across the spectrum from 20-year-olds all the way to 60-year-olds. 70-year-olds are still actively, actively, buying. actively buying property, mainly yeah. cash buyers yeah, at yeah. that point. Banks don't like giving debt to 70-year-olds. Not so, so much. At a point in time, the bank sort of goes, no, no, no. But it was good. Um, thanks, Paul. Thanks for coming in. No, done, welcome, done well. It's interesting. Uh, and thanks, William, if you're tuning into this. I no doubt you are. Um, Thanks for being so uh, accessible and, and uh, open and frank uh, with your journey investing in property. This is the sort of stuff that we like here on the Pure Property Podcast with Paul Glossop and Book. Where's it at? Uh, it's on its way. We talked about this last yes, podcast, mate. We're, we're close. Gonna, gonna, you can gonna, still gonna, get the gonna. current copy. And I think anyone who is uh, urging or wanting to get uh, a pre copy of Surface Guide to Property Investment writing the next wave, which will be the next book, um, getting the first one will give you a much much deeper understanding. So, as to do where your we homework started. first. Do your homework first, but you can grab a free copy. Is the uh, is is probably the the good a thing. Free for copy free rather copy. than from a bookshop. Yeah, well, you can get a free copy. You just handle postage. I think it's about maybe nine or ten bucks for postage. Jump on purepropertyinvestment.com and there's, I think if you go to do you dropship that or someone sit there put in a little thing with a note from you? I literally have my office does it for you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's hand signed and it's delivered. Oh, actually, get a little signature. Yeah, mate, we 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 do it personally. How many books you sign a week? Uh, sign? Oh, mm. I couldn't tell you. But yeah. book, books have sold it's over eight and a half thousand now. God. Yep. Who would have thought people <laughs> want to know what you're doing? Anyway, there must be someone in there. If they're giving you a second run, anyway, I look forward to, to seeing that's pure. Uh, that's Paul Glossop from uh, Pure Property Investment. Uh, thanks for coming in, mate. Uh, uh, thanks for treating everyone. Longer one, but this is how we're going to go about doing this, pulling these stories apart. Uh, so if you want to pause clients and you actually want to be part of this, I'm sure yeah, reach you'd be out. happy. To do that. What's the best way to get? If people just want to chat to you guys, or they want to go on this pathway of getting a bit of a strategy and working out whether they want to use you. What do they do? Uh, Purepropertyinvestment.com. They can just hit the inquire now button, and that'll uh, take them directly to my calendar. Um, if you're a previous client of mine, you know my email address, and you can just fire me an email or give me a call. A lot of people would have my number or the office number one three hundred nine eight five four two eight. There you go, and send feedback directly to Paul about how we can do this better. No, <laughs> Five-star generally, if, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely. If, if, uh, if you've got any sort of um, 
feedback or constructive criticism, or, or, or you've got some ideas of how we can use this time together to um, to deliver greater value to you. We are absolutely all ears, but please keep those reviews coming. So good to see. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you again next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property, or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. 